Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. You know, in all honesty, I only really picked up on this in the last few years is how incredibly important an opening statement is. Oh, yeah. And I've really kind of grown into where I really believe that if you get up and open big and you can deliver on it, the case is over at that point. And, right. you know, I, I think I think this this case is a pretty, pretty good example of that. Please rise. Court is now in session. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. As always, I am your host, uh, Steve Lowry, and here uh, with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited to talk about um, this case today. I don't want. I don't want to get ahead of us. But reading these transcripts, I have so many questions about this judge in particular. Yeah, <laughs> well, I'm really excited. Well, we're definitely going to get into talking about uh, you know how this case was defended because I thought, from my standpoint, I thought it was. Uh, interesting defense tactic and um and a very bold one that didn't work out for the defense in this case but uh but Yvonne we'll, I was gonna we'll say get to uh, all that yeah exactly I was gonna say that I am uh, I am also excited for our firm this week because uh, uh as you know Jeff is coming up for a court of appeals argument and so we're gonna bench you and Jeff uh later on this week and I get to play the judge to uh to you and my <laughs> law partner so that's gonna be fun right you're you're gonna be drunk with power and oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to play the evil defense lawyer on appeal. Um, not that this particular lawyer is evil, but it's, it's, it goes against my sensibilities, but it's good. I think right, I'm going to get right. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I plan on, you know, using my, my power to get really personal with the two of you. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> great. Well, um, well, I'm really excited about our case today, too. And let me just go ahead and introduce our, our guest today. Our guest is uh, Scott Occhio-Grosso. Uh, Scott is a partner at the firm of Block, O'Toole, and Murphy in New York, New York. And you can look up Scott at uh, www.blockotool.com. That's B-L-O-C-K-O-T-O-O-L-E.com. And, uh, and Ivana, use the www, even though you tell me I never have to. I- <laughs> I wasn't, I was probably going to say something about it. So you beat me to it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, Scott, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. And uh, it's, it's a thrill and an honor for me to be uh, on the phone with you guys and part of the program. As I told you before we got on air, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a fan of it. And you guys do an amazing job. And thank you so much for taking the time. Well, we, we really appreciate uh, uh, having you on here, and, and, uh, and, and uh, sorry we're missing your partner. You tried this case with your partner, Daniel, too, and unfortunately, Daniel couldn't be on uh, with us today, but, uh, but we're lucky to have you, Scott. Well, as I said, it's a thrill, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll do my best to, to carry the weight for the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 we've we've read through the transcripts, and it looked like you two did a uh, did an excellent job in this case. Scott, let me just give a little bit of background uh, of you so that uh, everybody can know who we're talking to. So Scott is uh, well, he's, Scott's been a super lawyer for at least the last five, if not six years, if I'm doing my math right. Uh, up in New York, uh, he's a graduate from the Fordham Law School, as was. Uh, his partner Daniel, and um, and Scott started out with the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office and um, and prosecuted cases there. Uh, sounds like uh, all kinds of cases, but uh, but got specifically involved in the uh, in the gang unit up there. Which uh, maybe when we're off the air, I have a case to talk to you about, Scott, that involves a, a gang down here and uh, outside of Atlanta. But um, but uh, but Scott has tried uh, a number of cases, has had multiple seven and eight figure. 
uh, verdicts and settlements, uh, focusing, I think, mainly in the area of construction law, but in all areas of law. And uh, Scott is a uh, adjunct prof professor at St. John's University School of Law, and uh, and he lives in uh, in Brooklyn with his wife and uh, and three children. So uh, great to have you on, Scott. Thank you very much, and and all accurate, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, good, good. Well, let's I talk a little. I do want to Go bring ahead, up real quickly because uh, about the St. John's thing, when I was in law school, St. John's knocked us out of like the semifinals of this like moot court competition. And I'm a little, I thought I was over uh -oh. it, but I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> where, where, where was the, if I could ask, do you remember where the competition was? Yeah, it was actually, it was a, this is probably like the coolest answer I would ever have to that question. It was actually in Vienna. It was an international arbitration competition. Oh, yeah, they, they never let me off the mainland, so that was not me coaching that team, so. <laughs> well, they, they crushed us, and I'm, I'm not over it, but, um, but they were great. <laughs> not, not sore at all about it. Yeah. Um, Bygones. Right. <laughs> well, anyway. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about this case today. So, and Scott, you just tried this case back in April. Uh, so, I mean, we're literally talking weeks ago. And um, the name of the case is uh, uh, Robert Lisiaga uh, versus the New York City Transit Authority. Uh, it was tried in Kings County, New York. And I'm assuming that is that the county for, for uh, the Brooklyn, Queens area? It's, it's just for Brooklyn. Queens is Queens okay. County. So. Okay. Okay. Um, and so, so basically what this case, uh, 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 what happened in this case uh, was that Robert uh, was 23 years old. It was a Sunday afternoon around two to three in the afternoon. And he decided he was going to go to GameStop uh, to pick up a video game to play with his girlfriend's younger brother. And, and by the way, my daughter's uh, one of her favorite stores is GameStop. Anytime we go to the mall, we got to go by there. So I know that store well. Um, so he, he was riding his bike to, games, to GameStop. And, um, and if I screw up the pronunciations, correct me, but he was in the Bedford-Stuyvesant area. Is that right? That's where, that's where he lived, yeah. And he was biking okay. to the Bushwick section. Okay, okay. And so at the same time that he was doing this, there was some work being done on the elevated trains uh, at, uh, by the New York City Transit Authority. And essentially what they were doing was they were removing sections of the rail uh, that um, had to be replaced. And I think they were doing four sections uh, that they were replacing that day. Each section is about 39 feet long and, and has a number of railroad ties on, on that. And if anybody doesn't know, the railroad ties are the wooden, you know, massive pieces of wood that go between the two tracks. Uh, and so what happened in this case, uh, and I'll just make, I'll, I'll make it short because uh, the way you did your opening, Scott, I want to talk about it a little bit and I, I, I really, I really liked it. But what happened is as they were lifting off one of the tracks, they, um, uh, one of the uh, railroad ties fell off and, um, and landed on a steel girder below, which was about 30 to 40 feet above the street level. Uh, and um, essentially what it sounds like happened is that, that, that the two workers down there were told then to essentially tie a rope around this uh, railroad tie, haul it over to a, um, a, a hole that would drop it down to street level and just drop it down there. Uh, and uh, 
one of the things that should have been done that was a point of contention in the case was that there should have been a clear drop zone, a construction zone that was closed off to the public. Uh, the defense, of course, argued that it was closed off to the public and Scott and, and Daniel argued that it was open because of a 12 foot gap. Uh, but essentially they dropped this, um, this railroad tie down into this area. And at the same time, uh, Robert was riding his bike under that and got hit by the uh, railroad tie and catastrophically injured, was uh, paralyzed, but uh, sounds like paralyzed in, in uh, just a, a terrible way that just grossly yeah. disfigured his body uh, and was extremely painful. And, um, and so that was essentially what the case was about. And the verdict that you, that you guys received, I'm going to break it down. The, it, it was, uh, you got a verdict of past pain and suffering of $9 million, future pain and suffering of $60 million, of past medicals of $1,174,972.38, and future medicals of $40 million for a total verdict of a $110,174,972.38. That was a very brief overview, Scott, but did I get that basically correct? All accurate and really still hard to believe. But, uh, you know, I mean, before we talk about anything substantive, I just wanted to mention and thinking about this this morning and, you know, and I know you guys know this as well as anybody in the business. And we're talking about an incredible success and a verdict and, and, you know, no case like this happens without a tragedy. So um, I'd be lying if I said there wasn't a piece of me that feels almost guilty about, in a sense, celebrating the success we had as trial attorneys when the only reason a case of this magnitude ever happens is because a young man is, you know, injured in the most horrible and unthinkable way. But I know you guys, uh, you dedicate your lives to doing this kind of work. So I know you care like I do. So just wanted to put that out there. I'd feel I'd feel bad if I didn't. Well, and I'll say, you know, just as a trial lawyer, I mean, one of the truly great moments in, in uh, I think, in any trial lawyer's career, but, in you know, is when you can uh, literally just uh, help somebody who's in need uh, and has really nobody else to help them and, um, and change their life. And um, I know this case, it looks like, uh, Scott, it looks like this case is going up on appeal. Is it still under appeal or have you guys resolved? Yeah, well, the, the way it is, and, and I, mean, I guess the only other thing I'd add just to your recitation in the beginning is the way cases are tried in, in Brooklyn and some of the other counties up here is they bifurcate the trials. So we, we first had to try all of liability and take a liability verdict. And only then did we move on to the damages trial and you know go through from opening all the way through summation uh, from soup to nuts again, and then take a damages verdict. Um, but um, sorry, I forgot. I forgot. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have got off on that well, tangent because no, I, I, I forgot what you asked. No, me. I, I, <laughs> I definitely wanted to ask you about the bifurcation because you know, we'll, okay. you know, down here in Georgia, we um, we bifurcate the punitive damages phase if you have oh, a okay. punitive damages phase, but but liability and um, and damages are tried together, except if the defense moves for it and the judge agrees to it we usually would oppose it um but um but there have been cases that have been what we call trifurcated so tried in three different sections and uh, and i did want to talk to you about about that but um but I, the question i had asked you and i just didn't know it sounded like the the city at this point is planning on taking this case up on the all right that- yeah so yeah they have the trial judge gave them 60 days to do a post-trial written motion 
um, to him. And then our our best guess is that uh, then from whatever he does with that decision, there's going to be an appeal after that. And um, unfortunately, the the way things are, I don't know how how long that process would play out for you guys. Um, but for here, this case, would, the appeal would go to the second department, and um, it's the wait is likely about two years um, for when the appeal goes up. So um, something that obviously we had to condition Robert to right away after the verdict was that you know the the fight and the wait is far from over. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, and I, and I wish you guys the best of uh, best of luck on on appeal and. Um, you know, and, and I know that that can be a, a long process, but, uh, but as I said, I mean, and we'll talk about this in detail, but, uh, you all tried a, a, a truly fantastic case. So, um, thank you very much. Well, um, yeah, let's, you know, since you brought it up, let's just talk about the bifurcation issue, uh, for a second, because, um, you know, I, my, my gut instinct is to, uh, oppose bifurcation normally. And it sounds like that's the norm up there. Um, but, um, but, you know, tell us about how you think that played out, because I guess, you know, from the uh, once the defense loses a case and loses it 100 percent, especially where they've they've you know vigorously defended it, which they did in this case. Right. Um, you know, it seems like it's tough for them to get up and then and then just argue about damages when they, you know, uh, you know, have lost the liability section of the case. How, how does that uh I, yeah, I agree. I agree, Steve, 100%. Like, I, I feel the same way. And, you know, we don't have the the option um, of opposing bifurcation. Like, they, in in Brooklyn and in Queens also and some other parts of the city, that's, that's just the way the court does it. And there are times when we can move for unification um, if it's a situation where the, the injuries are such that the client doesn't have any recollection or you know, certain other ways that we can move for unification. And, and generally speaking, I, I mean, I would say almost every time every lawyer prefers a unified trial, especially when you're talking about injuries of this magnitude, I think the feeling or the thinking is that the more that you can put on about just how bad the injuries are before the jury is ever asked to make a liability decision, the better position you're in when that time comes. Um, you know, but, but, the dynamic that you describe, I think, really was uh, very important and, and prominent in this case. And, you know, and Dan and I were talking about it during the trial that it, we honestly never gave a second thought. We, the way we had it set up was pretty much he said, you try the liability case and I'll do the experts and damages. And, you know, I, we, we talked about it during the case that we really never gave. Uh, I should say I never gave much thought to damages because you know, as you mentioned in, in your, your recitation, I mean, he, Robert is so catastrophically injured that, you know, I, I never really thought, well, I'm going to have to really uh, figure out creative ways of articulating the, the nature of the damages. It was really just a liability fight for me. But I did feel and I did tell people right from the start, I took all the depositions in the case and I said, you know, people were frightened of this case. Just, I don't know if it's a background in, in being a prosecutor and just as a prosecutor, you just figure out how to make every single fact help you and how, how to try and just build your case to where it's just, it, it's insurmountable. You try and put evidence forth for you, basically saying, look, you know, this is such a mountain of evidence. There's no way it isn't this way. And every time I took a deposition and every time these guys answered questions about 
the procedures that they swore they followed. I'm thinking, there's, but there's no way they did that here, right, you know? Right. And, and it just kept mounting up. And I kept coming back to the office saying, I'm telling you, I really like liability on this case. And I felt for exactly the reason you're saying that if we got there on liability, then that jury was going to hold against transit the way they defended the case because they sort of had to, you know, they sort of had right. to blame it on Robert. And uh, when that backfired the way it did, you know, I think it was sort of the perfect storm for us. This episode of The Great Trials Podcast is brought to you by Forge Consulting. So when a case gets resolved and you've reached a resolution for your client, a lot of times that is only half the job or a portion of the job. Many times the clients still need help on either setting up trust or figuring out how they're going to manage their the money that they've received. And when you have questions like that, that is where Forge Consulting comes in and you can find them at forgeconsulting.com. Yeah, they can really help you out with a lot of the stuff that can be really hard to navigate both for your clients and for the lawyers. They can do stuff like administer special needs and other types of settlement trusts. They can help your clients address and preserve Medicare and Medicaid benefits. They can assist with investing um, assets and expediting the settlement process. They're they're really fantastic. If your brain kind of turns off when you get with numbers, then these guys can help you out. They also specialize in structured settlements, structuring attorney's fees, traditional annuities, and other financial management portfolio type questions. They can help your clients in all aspects. Please reach out to Forge Consulting. You can find them at forgeconsulting.com. And when you reach out to Forge Consulting, please mention the Great Trials Podcast. Again, that's forgeconsulting.com. So in that liability phase, you know, you're still, you still have to talk obviously about what happened and establish causation and stuff like that. Right. So do you just sort of leave it as, um, you know, and Robert was, was catastrophically injured and you just kind of leave it like that? Like, where's the line as far as how much you talk about what happened to him? That's Yvonne, that's a great question because, you know, and, and, it, and it really starts before that point, because when you're picking a jury, you know that it's going to be the same jury that hears both. So um, while we're always careful to front everything in jury selection and really in every aspect of the trial, um, because I think like you guys, I've learned that the hard way is that if you don't front right. something, you get burned by it. But oh, yeah. um, you know, when, when we do jury selection, we're always saying, listen, the only way we're ever getting to the in the bifurcated counties, we're saying the only way you're ever going to get to the questions about the injuries is if you decide based on the evidence that the defendant's responsible for the happening of the accident. Okay. But once you do that, then in jury selection, you say, but listen, we honestly believe and we're confident that you are going to get there. So we need to ask you some questions about damages. And in this particular case, you know, we, I, I got up there in jury selection and I just said, listen, there's no beating around the bush. This, this is what this case is about. This kid is paralyzed from the navel down for the rest of his life. You know, that's what this case is. And I thought it was important to look, obviously, for a lot of reasons to, to get that out there as early as possible. But you would, I guess you wouldn't be surprised. A lot of people just hearing that in jury selection and saying to them, you know, now that you know that that's the magnitude of the decisions you're going to be asked to make, can you sit in a case like this? We lost a lot of potential jurors just on that alone. So right. um, I feel like the gravity of what you're dealing with is there, even though you're not allowed to go into the specifics of the proofs on the medicals. Got it. Got and it. I, and that also, makes sense. and also, Robert was in the room during opening statements, so you know. I mean, okay. 
So they so they knew by seeing him how uh, catastrophically right. injured he was. Yeah. yeah, and and I guess in a sense to his credit, the defense attorney John Janowski in jury selection, he was a lot more explicit about the nature of the injuries than I was. Um, you know, I guess sort of the like the reciprocal trying to take the sting out of it. But he said he said, look, the kid has no sexual function. He has diapers. He uses a catheter. You know, like he I didn't put any of that out there, but he did and. I, I I chose not to object when he did. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I guess the I guess the thought process there is to make the sympathy so overwhelming that somebody would say they can't be fair in that case, and then you know possibly strike them for cause. Yeah, or I guess in a sense to try and desensitize it, but you know that's you, you can't bite off that much when not when you're dealing with something like this. Right, right. Um, well, so I, I've always heard a rumor about uh, about picking juries up in New York City. And tell me if this is true. Um, I, I heard the, the rumor is that when you're uh, um, voir direing or, you know, asking your panel, uh, uh, some of that's done out in the hallway with the lawyers. Yeah. And then if, there, yeah. if there's a problem, you run into the judge and tell them, uh, you know, we got a problem. Here it is. That's that's pretty much exactly what it is. And I, I was, you know, I was thinking as we were talking about, I was going to ask you guys if it's different for you. Like when you pick juries. Are you in the courtroom under the judge's supervision? Yes. Or, yeah. yeah we, for we, us, that's only in federal court. And and obviously, you know, every time I ever did a criminal trial back in the day, it was like that also. But for civil cases here, we're in a room alone with the potential jurors. And then we always tell them that if there's something that is particularly sensitive for them to talk about, they have a right to speak to us privately in the hallway. And then only if there are questions about cause challenges or something else that goes on, do we go to a judge for a ruling. Okay. And so is there a court reporter there taking down uh, everything? Nope. No record. So how, so I guess as far as, uh, as far as creating a, a record for a strike for cause, I mean, if, if you feel like you've got a strike, what do you do in that? Do you take the, do you take the, the juror into in front of the judge and question them on those issues? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. If it's that close a call or where, let's say if there's a difference where we say the potential juror said X and the defense attorney says no, he said Y, then we would ask the judge to question that juror. But they're generally hands off. They don't want to get too directly involved. But yeah, that, wow. that would be the procedure. That no, that is a lot different. I think you guys' mouths are watering about this. <laughs> right. That's all the things I would do. <laughs> <laughs> You see that, well, I mean, Yvonne, they, know, finally, because... they finally turn you loose like that in a room, see? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, you that know, sounds nuts. You know, uh, um, so down here in Georgia, you know, we essentially, you know, question the whole panel at one time. And then depending on the right. judge, it's, it's really discretionary. Uh, you'll, you can do your individual follow-ups right then or you'll wait till the end, uh, depending on whether uh -huh. the, how the judge wants you to do it. Then you do it at the end. But everything's done there in front of the court reporter. Everything's done there in front of the judge. And you, you know, pretty much make your calls uh, right then. I did, um, I did years ago try a case up in New Jersey, and it wasn't the same as it was in New York, but, it w but we did have uh, about 100 people sitting, you know, in, in the courtroom, and we were questioning 12 at a time, and then if one of them got struck for whatever reason, you brought up the next, you know, next person and, and put them in, in there, and, uh, and yep. the judge would just ask, she would just, the judge in that case would just say, did you hear all the questions the lawyers asked? And they'd say, yes. And they say, anything to add? No. Okay. Keep going. You know, so you don't really get any <laughs> yeah, more. Blank, blank slate, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. 
Wow. Yeah, and but then, let me ask you, if is, I could, I'm sorry to, I'm sorry to, this is, this is probably rude to be asking you guys no, questions during the interview, okay. but, but curiosity <laughs> got the best of me. When, when you exercise challenges, is it in front of the whole room? Do you have to actually go through the challenge procedure in front of the potential jurors? So, so usually you'll sidebar, you know, go up to the oh, judge okay. and, and you, you might just, and it, it all, again, it depends on how the judge says, usually you save them for the end and you'll, you'll do it either in sidebar or the judge will clear the courtroom and you'll make your arguments then. You know, there are times when the judge wants you to just let them know that you're going to have a cause. So you might just turn to the judge and say, you know, I'm going to have a challenge for cause and then they'll know oh, to okay. take that up take that up later but you, you don't uh, i've never had a, an experience where i've had to try and make the argument in front of everybody um, right, right. You know, then you certainly uh you, i mean I, I you know one of the worries in that is you you give other jurors an idea on how they can you know get right. out of uh, at a, right. at a uh, trial if they if they work hard enough yeah. um well yeah that no that's interesting so um it, you know i i i've i've heard about that up in uh, up, up in new york and i always wondered about that if uh, if if you know, if there's things happening out in the hallway and, and how exactly that, uh, how exactly, exactly that's all preserved. So, is, so is there not many appeals based on, uh, jury selection or, or strikes for cause? Very few. I mean, I, I guess part of the reason is that, you know, you, I think in most instances you'd be talking about harmless error by the time it got there, you know, because right. you're talking about one, unless of course that juror ended up staying on and, and but then you know I, I mean you always have the, someone if they really dislike a juror that much i guess they could unless they're out of challenges yeah i guess there are scenarios right. but very very few that i'm aware of i think i think uh I, i've had a few instances where i guess the argument got heated enough where one of the attorneys was saying that they want to make a record but i haven't even had an instance where a record was made on one of these jury or juror selection issues Right. Okay. Got it. Got and, it. And then one thing I think I noticed about your case, and I, I just wanted to ask you about it. So you, you try your case to jurors of six people. Is that right? Right. Six and um, standard is two alternates, but we, we usually try and get three, especially for a really significant case that we figure is going to last for a little while. So that was, that's what we right. did with this one, six and three. And from what I could tell, it looked like you had an all-female jury. Is that really right? an am an amazing thing? You know, it it just completely by chance it worked out that way. And um, I don't know. It's just it, 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 it. There's so many things, and I think this is probably something you guys hear and have experienced yourselves. But there's so many things that I feel like have to break right for a, a trial to end up this way. And you know, you work as hard as as you can to be in the best position to get the best result but you have to catch a lot of breaks. You know, it's like any time a pitcher throws a perfect game, there's always like that diving catch in the outfield or something, you know, and, and I, having the jury that we did, I think was everything, frankly, you know, and just, and it could be that, you know, the people walk in the room and sometimes you're like, Lord, why hast thou forsaken me? You know, and, and other <laughs> right. times you, you, you feel like it's somewhere in the middle. And this one was just like one after another. I felt like, these are really smart, really caring people who are going to get this, you know, they're going to get the liability thing. And once they do, they're going to do the right thing for us on damages. So, and yeah, yeah, yeah. it so happened it was an all female jury. And, and I screwed up once in the opening statement, uh, 
I st- and I, I told myself not to do it either. I said, ladies and gentlemen, and I'm like, uh, and I stopped right there and apologized, but. You know. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so it, is that something you guys were, were intentionally trying? Were you, were you, uh, did you, had you done some focus groups and thought that, that, uh, that uh, women jurors would be would be better in this case, or were you intentionally trying to get more women? women or? Um, you know, I, I, we didn't do focus groups per se. We always do as a, you know, we tried cases and, and Dan and I tried the bigger cases as a team. And one of the things that I think we do, like, like I'm sure you guys do is you, you know, you sort of, you round table it with, with minds that you trust and you say, who are we looking for? Who do we want on this case? And, um, you know, Robert's a young guy and, uh, you know, I think that anybody of any, uh, male or female will certainly understand, uh, just, you know, how incredibly challenging his situation is. And, um, I, we got that same feedback from men that were in our jury pool when we talked about the issues. But, uh, I think it's so hard to say this without, Without saying something that's going to come off wrong, but I I think for for what it's worth, I think that the way that we anticipated them defending the case based on the depositions was that it was a lot of um, like like dare I say like the male perspective of well this is the right way because this is the way we do things damn it and right. you know and it was sort of like you know you just had this sense of guys just rushing on a job site because they feel like that's how you're supposed to do things and if something happens it's not my fault the dumb kids should have known better and we felt like you know especially in this day and age and this is where i have to be careful in this day and age with leadership being what it is in our country that you know there is a particular sentiment against that sort of dynamic and uh i think that women are, 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 are more tuned into it and perhaps more fed up with it. And, you know, like everything else, we figured something that, that would play. Right. I was also thinking maybe it could be, this comes from my New York knowledge based solely on movies and TV shows that it could <laughs> also women getting payback for getting like cat called by construction workers and stuff. What wow. Do you, think? you know what? I, I wish I had come up with that, <laughs> but you're, you're getting a call next time I have to pick a jury. So <laughs> no, but that's a, that's a great one. That makes, that makes really good sense. And I guess, I mean, on a level, like I, when I'm thinking about the witnesses that are going to come in, you know, most of them, I did think, well, uh, a jury full of women isn't going to really like that guy. He's going to come across like that guy, that construction worker. Um, but I, yeah, you know, it's a, that's a great point. And that's my, I'm not, that's I, my... and I am not, I'm not confirming the stereotype that construction right, workers right. in New York whistle at <laughs> women because the bulk of what we do here is represent injured construction workers who right, sure right. would never do such <laughs> a thing, that. but. No, I do want to make clear that is that is solely coming from movies and TV shows and not actual New York. I feel like it's mainly coming from like cartoons, Vaughn. Like uh, you have the wolf construction. That's exactly right. Over the, like basically the only thing I watch cartoons. <laughs> 
Well, um, well, let's talk a little bit about opening, Scott, uh, because w- okay. one thing I really liked what you did in this case, and, and I want you to talk about it a little bit, is, um, you know, you, I mean, everybody knew uh, that Robert was catastrophically injured, and, um, and you really took your time uh, building up, getting to what actually happened to Robert, and really spent the bulk of your time, and I'm talking about the liability section, uh, uh-huh. The bulk of your time going through the the number of failures, as you saw it from your side, that the that the transit authority uh, did, and it just sort of like you know, I, I when I as I was reading it, I was just kind of like waiting, like okay, now he's going to talk about what happened to Robert, and then uh, no, there's you know, there's still more, and you kept saying that you know, and there's even more, um, yeah. and I, and so I just really like that. Um, but you talk okay. about how you did opening and and um, and and sort of laid the groundwork for uh, you know what the New York Transit Authority you know didn't do from your your standpoint yeah well uh, first thanks very much um one one thing uh, is that you know part of it is largely informed by what we do working in construction cases so much and really being tuned into what is and is not appropriate safety procedures um and you know there are specific laws that protect construction workers in new york from elevation related risks exactly like this one and that's one of the things we said from the start is if Robert had been a worker and this happened, this is what we, it's a la- it's labor law 240 is the local, that's the New York law. We say this would be a slam dunk 240 case. It's a falling object and it you know never should have happened. Um, so, so in a way, in a sense, like, you know, I attacked it that way from day one is I, I get it's not a labor law case. I get that Robert's not a worker. But that's really a trap because if I build it as if it were a labor law case and I really focus the jury on all the failures in procedure, then they get up and say, but wait a minute, he wasn't supposed to be there. And I get to say, yeah, you're goddamn right. He wasn't supposed to be there. And how the hell did you let him get there? You know, so. Um, it, it was, and I'm sorry for my language. No, 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 I should have, I should have said, I'm, I, I'm so boys about this stuff that I, I almost can't help it, but. Um, but I, I felt like, again, because they weren't clearly going to want to make the focus what Robert did and how unreasonable Robert's conduct was riding the bike where he did, that uh, if I could, you know, and I kind of thought of this like a couple weeks before the trial started, I was just going through everything. I'm walking down the hall here and I went into Dan's office and I said, you know, if we do this right, it's not going to be a question of did transit failed to take appropriate steps it's going to be how many different ways did they fail and i've always felt like anytime you can attach numbers to something with a jury like you know the number of failures and talk about the number of failures then you know the hope is that it becomes overwhelming where if they do get stuck on any point and they're deliberating on one of them people say yeah but look there are seven more you know there are seven other ways they messed up so um, you know, I guess that was really the hope was that if, if, if I could make the focus of it and, and, and I guess in a sense thinking also that then they're going to have to defend against that case, you know, and, and I'm sure you guys are probably tuned into this and I, for all the trial work I've done, I really, you know, in all honesty, I only really picked up on this in the last few years is how incredibly important an opening statement is. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I guess part of it is when I first started doing uh, criminal cases, especially as you mentioned, doing gang homicides and stuff, the truth of the matter is I didn't know what witnesses I was going to be able to get to court. 
So, right. you know, yeah. so I couldn't open, I couldn't open big, you know, and, but now when having the whole discovery, having the depositions, I, I've really kind of grown into where I really believe that if you get up and open big and you can deliver on it, the case is over at that point. And, right. you know, I, I think, I think this, this case is a pretty, pretty good example of that. Yeah, I mean, and I, you know, it's what all the, the psychology tells us is that, you know, most people make up their minds relatively quickly. And, you know, in closing can be, uh, you know, more sexy because, you know, you, you're, you got a little bit more freedom, you can argue, um, right. and you're, you're not as bound as much. But I mean, I, I agree with you. I think opening is really uh, just, you know, that and voir dire are uh, two of the most important parts of trial because that's Absolutely. the first of the um, Absolutely. And you know what, I'm not to jump back and, and but, but, you know, th that was something that obviously I think we all do this. Like you try and really be on message when you pick your jury, but like there were specific themes that like almost on a subconscious level that I was hammering during jury selection. Like I kept saying to them during jury selection, you know, there's going to be times throughout the trial when there's going to be long days, everyone's patience is going to be tested. But even though it seems like everything's been covered, I'm going to have to lean over to, to Mr. O'Toole and ask him, is there anything else? Because a job as important as what we're doing here, it's important to take enough time to do it the right way. You won't hold that against right. me, ma'am, will you? You won't hold that against me, will you, sir? And so, you know what I mean? This is so, sort of planting the seed for that. And the other one was clear communication, saying like, listen, you know, I'm not coming here to fight. I don't want to raise my voice with any witness. But if they're saying something that I know isn't right because I read the deposition, then I may have to raise my voice because it's that important at that moment that we communicate clearly, you know? So, so I agree with you, Steve. It's like you, you, there's so much you can do in jury selection if you're mindful of where you're going. And then, and then you know, I was just talking to one of my colleagues about it yesterday. Like I, I try to, to keep a pretty even keel in jury selection. Cause as you may have gathered by now, I'm excitable and all that. I'm, Italian, I'm sitting here in my office talking with my hands. I wish you could see, <laughs> but, but so I, I try not to like chew the scenery during jury selection so that I have somewhere else to go with the opening statement, you know, so that then I can, I can shift and, and, and get more emphatic about things. And, and, you know, and like you said, uh, do that because you're right. You know, we, we believe as trial lawyers that the summation is so important, you know, but I'll tell you this case in particular, like by the time I was summing up on damages, some of these, the women in the jury, they were looking back at me almost like, would you please shut up already? You right, know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> no, that's uh, well, absolutely no right. Go ahead. I noticed, Go ahead, well, this kind of relates to what I had mentioned at the very beginning of the episode, but um, you're open which I thought was was so powerful and effective there were like you were especially given the fact that you are constantly being interrupted with objections um, and what I had kind of alluded to at the beginning that happened both during the um, openings and the closings was the way this judge was handling objections which was just like nope keep talking no sidebar just keep talking keep going yeah, <laughs> yeah you know it's it, it's it, it's uh it's funny like when I, I don't know if you've either one of you, I don't know how, if people are, I'm going to assume generally a little more courteous than that down there. Like, <laughs> but uh, I mean, I've been, I've been down that road before I've had adversaries that did that. And you know, it's, it's next to impossible not to have to like in some way recognize it and, and for it to have some impact on your focus or on your rhythm. I mean, and, and it's funny, like, I don't know how much you get that from the transcript, but, uh, you know, I was using uh, 
a screen and projecting things during the opening. So because of that, the defense attorney repositioned himself in the courtroom so that he could see it. And he was about four feet away from me. And his objections are loud. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. It's not just that he's objecting that often. He's like barking them right in my ear, you know, but, but like everything else, it ended up playing because then there were times later in the trial where I, where I basically said like, you know, we're going to get to the truth. And no matter how many times he does that, we're going to get there, you know, and, and, and saying it to the jury, like, this is, it's like a, we against him thing, you know, like he's going to, they, they've refused to accept responsibility. And every time I even mention the word responsibility, he jumps up and objects. It's just, right. It was like, he was, it was the perfect foil in a sense, you know, but yeah. yeah. And the judge did like the, and, and that was the other thing I was going to say is you kind of get in a rhythm with it when you have somebody like that. And when you get a feel for the judge where like the first couple of times I stopped and, and, you know, okay, I'll let the judge rule. But he kind of had this look where he's like, I don't want to deal with this, you know? So, so I almost like kept talking over the objection and he let me, that's when he was like, no, no, go ahead, go ahead. Um, so, it, you know, it, it, it worked out. I mean, it was, it was annoying, but it worked out. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, you know, the thing about objections, I know, you know, we talked about it before is that, um, you know, if, if, uh, all the jury knows uh, when they start objecting to you like that is that whatever you're saying is really important and, That's right. and the defense doesn't like it. That's um, right. You know, so it's like, it's just drawing attention to it. So, I mean, you know, we, you know, we intentionally try not to object unless it's, you know, just something really over the line or something. Absolutely. And I'm sure your experience has been like, as, as you, as you get to a higher level in practice and in trial work, the truth is there are fewer and fewer objections. You know, right. I, I think, I think that, that that's true of most good trial attorneys is they only object when they really have to. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, well, and, and, and you, we haven't really talked about um, <clears throat> how the defense defended this case, but I read their opening and, and I thought, like I said, it was a pretty bold defense and it's, you know, kind of one of these things is it, it was either going to work, or it wasn't. So, I mean, I, you know, either they were going to, you know, you were going to get a defense verdict or the number you were going to get was going to be a big number. There was no, no, it, from my standpoint, no attempts to try and soft pedal this or to keep the jury in a more, you know, middle of the road type. Uh, and, and they really did that by just attacking your client um, and, and basically said that he, uh, you know, veered off of the road to dry, to ride his bike right through the middle of this construction zone, which from their contention was, you know, marked as a construction drop zone with people with hard right. hats, and all that kind of stuff around. And then they really just harped on the fact that your, your client had, uh, had a criminal history and I didn't really understand what the, what the crime was, but there's something about a false alarm that he had uh, pulled on his grandfather and he had spent right. some time in Rikers or something like that. Yeah, Rikers. Yeah, Rikers is a, a it's a state correctional facility in the city. Um, and when people have short time, if they're not doing uh, what we refer to as upstate jail time here, generally less than a year, they oftentimes they serve the time on Rikers Island, um, which is it's a it's an island off of the city. Um, so what the crime was was um, Robert and you know for whatever it's worth. Um, you know, and none of this came out in the trial really. Um, well, actually it did some in the damages part, but you know, Robert was diagnosed bipolar and, um, Robert had a rough upbringing and, uh, you know, I know that's not in any way exclusive to New York, but the, there's hard knock life up here in the city that is uh, pretty daunting for anyone to survive. And, and, and Robert 
lived that kind of childhood. And um, his grandfather, basically the way it is, is he never, you know, he never had a father in his life. His father was incarcerated. His mother left when he was a kid. And as he testified to at some point in the trial, she chose a guy over her children. And, you know, the, the kids were, were, it's not that Robert's grandparents didn't care about him and his brother and sister, but it's, you know, they had no choice. Like they, they, they out of necessity were raising the kids and then his grandmother passed away. So, you know, so you have a, an older gentleman who now all of a sudden is, is father to three children. And Robert, by all accounts, was, you know, a little bit of a difficult kid just based on based on factors out of his control, having this bipolar condition. And obviously he and his grandfather butted heads. And, you know, uh, at some point, Robert, just to, just out of spite, he called 911 from his grandfather's apartment and said, there's a fire here and then left knowing that it would, you know, the result would be uh, an emergency response. And, you know, I mean, as you're going into your case and you're thinking about how this right. is going to play in front of the jury, you, you know, with, with everything that I was dying to sink my teeth into in the case, I was cognizant of the fact that this is about as bad a conviction as you can put in front of a jury when the way they're trying to defend it is to say this kid did something impulsive and inexplicable, right? That's, right. you know, right. so it dovetails pretty nicely for them. But yeah, right. this was part of, as you say, you know, this was part of the the way they defended the case. And, um, you know, Steve, to, to your to your point, like the, the, there was one of two strategic approaches I think you could have taken defending this case. And I'm sure we all do this, too. Like when you're going into a case, you, you try and think, OK, so if I'm defending this case, what am I going to do with it? You know, and uh, the, and I tell you, honestly, me, no way in the world I ever would have done the all or nothing approach that they did. Right. I would not have. I would have right from the start said, you know, we acknowledge that. uh there are things that we could have done better here. There are things that could have been safer here. And the only thing we're going to ask you to do is, is fairly assess not only our shortcomings, but also Roberts, you know, right. and, and, and play that middle of the road and be that reasonable guy or, or woman in the courtroom right from the start. And again, the perfect foil, man, he just, you know, he, he just never, I mean, it, it, it was astounding. I'm like, how can you, knowing the fact pattern, knowing what these depositions say, how can you stand there and tell the jury that now you're going to see we did everything reasonable? It's like, right, right. you know, you're setting yourself up for a big number. This episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document, and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day-in-the-life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast. 
and that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. That's ltsatlanta.com. Correct me if I'm wrong, but New York is a, a pure comparative fault state. Is that right? Yeah, it is. So that means if, like, say, for instance, they found that your client was 90% at fault and, and New York State Transit Authority was 10% at fault, then whatever the verdict is, he would still get 10%. Is that right? You get a dime on a dollar. Yeah. 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 That's well, that, what you yeah. have to do. You have to try it to a discount, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll it, make because, an offer, you know, you know or make <laughs> Right, right. right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but just so you know, I mean, I don't know if it's the same with authorities down there, but, but um, as a general rule, obviously there are exceptions, but if there were, you would have thought this case would have been one. But as a general rule, the, the authorities, because they're, they, they consider themselves transparent agencies. Um, so they, they, they're feeling, generally speaking, I'm not saying this is, I'm reading from their policy statement, but generally speaking, they won't settle really big cases because they feel like if you're going to get it, you have to get it from a jury. It can't right. end up in the newspaper that we paid all this money to somebody. So voluntarily, but, but, but it seems like, you know, in a, in a, in a pure comparative state where, you know, you, you really have that option. I mean, we're, we're comparative fault, but only, you know, if we're 50% at fault, if plaintiff 50% at fault, then they lose altogether. Right. But, um, but you know, where you could really, you really could take that middle road and say, yep. uh, yes, we didn't do everything perfect, but you know, if he hadn't, if he had just stayed on the road, if he hadn't, you know, veered off, if he right. had, you know, looked at the signs, this wouldn't happen to him. So we just want you to fairly assess fault between the two of us. Yeah. And you know, that's one of the things we're thinking like going into the liability case and even during the liability case is, you know, what percentage are we going to walk away from in summation? Like to maintain our credibility, you know, do we assign a small amount of fault to our own client? Right. Um, and you know, and, and again, not only were most of the attorneys here like scared of the liability on this case, but it was pretty much the consensus was, yes, we're going to have to walk away from some points. You know, you're going to have to invite them to discount it for what he did, but it was just the way the case went in. And honestly, it wasn't really until I was on my feet summing up on liability. And I just, I'm, I'm just like, no, full justice, man. They, you know, yeah. they said they did nothing wrong. Give it to them. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I mean, I love that because, you know, that, that would have been my gut instinct would be to, you know, have your client, you know, take some responsibility and, and uh, you know, and it, it gives you the, the power of uh, credibility that he's willing to admit. Exactly. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's a, it's a gutsy call and I'm glad it, uh, I'm, I'm glad it worked out. Well, thank you. So I, I did have some questions about some of the things I saw that they argued in their closing that I, I really didn't understand, but it must have been something important during the trial. But they, you know, were trying, they were basically trying to say that your client was a liar and, and wasn't telling the right. truth about the fact that he couldn't remember certain things about what happened that day. But they, some point about the fact that he said he didn't have lunch because it was hot out but it wasn't hot out. I mean, I didn't understand. Yeah. That. yeah. A little bit of a stretch, right? Right. Right. Yeah. No, they, they, I guess like in, 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 a, you know, there's, and Dan O'Toole was, uh, he's uh, a big proponent of this is, you know, he says that there's the case that you think you're going to try. And then there's the case that you end up trying. And, you know, obviously the more prepared you are, the more it ends up being the case that you thought you were going to try. But he's, uh, he, he's, uh, a huge believer that in motion practice, 
you know, you can go into a case where the defense hasn't, they think they're going to be able to say this about your client. They think they're going to be able to say that they think, you know, and then if you're effective in your motion practice, you can really limit what they're able to do. Um, and you know, I, I think they had a sense that they were going to be able to really portray Robert as, or that he's so clearly, it's like a race ipsa irrational, you know, and he's going to present that way. And the jury's going to believe that, you know, yes, this is exactly the kind of person who would have done something crazy, like bike right into a construction site. Um, but then when it didn't play out that way, um, one, because frankly, Robert did really well. He testified very well. And this is the thing that I was really the only person that dealt with Robert day in and day out. And, and, and I always will, you know, as long as, as long as God enables me to help this young man, I'm going to any way I can. And, you know, I can tell you, he is very difficult. He is very excitable, but he is very bright. And Robert understood. And Robert was a hundred percent honest when he said, and I'm sure you guys have come across this in cases where, you know, so there's such a bad head trauma that not only does somebody not remember what happened in the immediate aftermath of the accident, but it's really, they have not yet formed the memories from immediately before the accident. So right. it was, it was that sort of a head injury. So when Robert says, you know, I asked this guy what's happening. He said, it's okay, go ahead. And the next thing I remember was waking up in the hospital. Like, hey, that's legitimate. And I knew from the first time I ever spoke to Robert that that was legitimate. But they just, they, I don't know if they didn't believe it or they just didn't want to believe it. So the weather thing was sort of a, a real stretch to try and attack his credibility. They put in the weather records to show that it was, I don't know, I think it was like 50-something degrees. And, right. you know, they're saying like, oh, he said he was out there biking because it's a nice warm day. But look, it wasn't a warm day, which, you know, as, <laughs> as I think you, you keenly observed was not, you know, wasn't really going to tip anybody's decision in a persuasive way. And yeah. No. Yeah. Um, well, and then I saw that, I mean, I guess they were trying to say that he was riding, uh, the, I mean, it sounded like a pretty regular BMX bike, but he, they were called it a stump bike and it, his brakes weren't working. And it, um, yeah. Oh man. And this is another one of those, like, again, Dan always refers to it as manna from heaven, but like, you know, they, they kept the bike the whole time and never let us know that they had the bike. So then they, they, they brought the bicycle into court Again, with the thinking being, well, if we can't really sully Robert Luciaga as a person as much as we want to, when we show them this bike, they're going to say, oh, look, stunt bike, kid must have been riding like a lunatic, you know? But I wish, you could, oh man, I wish I could send you guys a picture. If I have one, I will right. after. Yeah, I'll send it after we're done. But, yeah, please you do. Know, yeah, I will. The, 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 this piece of steel, and actually, if you read their expert, um, Bruce Gambardella, he went into detail about this in his testimony, which again, I'm like, I can't believe they're giving me this, but you know, the piece of steel underneath the seat was, was completely mangled. Like it was oh. bent to where the seat was basically upside down, twisted yeah. completely around the other way. Um, so they brought it in thinking that, you know, they were going to make this point about it, but I, I just kept every chance I got, I showed this to the jury. I said, look, this is what it did to the piece of steel under the seat where he right. was sitting. After right. all that force went through his body, you know, so it's just, again, it's the case you think you're going to try and then the, the trial that sort of happens to you if you don't, you know, if you're not prepared, I guess. Right. Well, and as, as just sort of a side note, I mean, how did they get away with not telling you that they had the bike? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, we went back through it and we, there were arguments about, um, the extent to, to which demands were tailored for um, any physical evidence. And, 
you know, at the end of the day, I, it, I guess it was a close enough call that, you know, and, and, and I guess this happens too. And, and, uh, to, in big cases, and I'm sure you guys have, have, have sweat this dynamic through your big trials is that you, you're sort of record conscious the whole time. And, you know, and, and Dan is, a, is great at looking at this stuff. Me, I'm basically just living the fight, but he, you know, he has optics right. on other things and, and, and playing the game on other levels at the same time. And, so he's saying all the time, anytime it's a close call, he's saying, you know what, let them have it. We don't want to be sweating yeah. this on appeal for the next three years. Right. right. So it was, you know, it was one of those things where like, if we had, if we had absolutely fought tooth and nail, could we have maybe kept it out? Yeah. But it was, you know, he kept, he kept saying, and okay, I was jinxing me the whole trial. I, I, my knuckles were raw from knocking on wood. He's like, you have them, you have them. They're right where you want. I'm like, please stop saying that. Please right. stop saying that. So he said, you know, every close call, he's like, let them have it. Let them have it. Oh, man, I, I, I hate it when people say that during trial. Like it's bad luck. That's the first time I got nervous during this whole call when I said that. Oh. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, well, you know, since you're talking about the bike, let's talk about some yeah. of the other demonstrative evidence that you used in this. Because it sounded like in the opening you had an actual railroad tie uh, in in the courtroom that you uh, were able to show the jury. Yeah, and you know that's that's it, it was interesting. Like going into the case, um, we were talking about you know, do we get a complete uh, mock up of the entire scene? Do we get a three dimensional this and that? And you know, I'm not. I know there's a I'm sure people do incredible things with that stuff on trial, you know, and, and again, I would love to see what technology does to make, uh, to make evidence more compelling in the way you present it. But, uh, you know, when we talked about it going into the case, Dan was saying, listen, if we can't make the whole scene really clear, we're not going to have their trust. And I said, you know what, respectfully, that's not really our job. Like I, there's only a couple things we want them to focus on. We want them to focus on how big a railroad tie is. So we want a railroad tie in the courtroom. And let me tell you, it is a huge piece of wood. Right. It's 10 feet long by six inches by eight inches. And like saying the dimensions, trust me, does not do it justice. Like you have to actually see one, especially in a sterile setting like a courtroom, you know? I mean, and, and it's like, and, and again, from the time being a prosecutor, like I'm, I, I love to stand behind the evidence. I love to be able to say, listen, this is not about me at all. I'm the vessel. You know, it's about the evidence in the case and having something like a railroad tie. And again, if all that, my knuckles were probably raw from how many times I wrapped them on the railroad right. tie while I was talking just to bring the jury's attention back to it. But the other thing that I thought was like really, really important for them to be focused on was the size of a 12 foot gap in the metal barricades. And at first I was thinking, oh, we have to bring metal barricades into court. But then I thought at the last minute, I said, you know what, please tell me you didn't order the barricades yet. Because if you did, I'm going to have to go into the pocket to pay for it because right. I, you know, I completely changed my mind. I said, the last thing we want the jury doing is looking at the barricades, you know? So I would rather them focus on how big a gap 12 feet is, which again, in a courtroom, it's enormous. So I, you know, we used the tape measure and figured out a really a, a good area of the courtroom from the railing behind counsel table to the stenographer's table, which was basically facing the jury. And I stood in the middle of it and said, look, this is the gap we're talking about that they didn't even man. They didn't even, not only did they leave this gap, but then they didn't even have somebody there, you know? So, so those like, yeah, we used photographs, we used the medical illustrations, but to me, the, the, other than the bicycle, which was a gift from them, it, yeah. the, the railroad tie 
and just focusing the jury on the size of that gap. The only other physical thing that did play to an extent was the the zip tie, which, you know, they were supposed to use plastic zip ties to secure the railroad ties to the rails. And it was just sort of, I think it was a, an effective courtroom moment because the, the transit worker who was the one who actually dropped the railroad tie, I handed him a zip tie and when he was on the stand. And I said, you know, go ahead, show us how you use it. And he zipped, obviously, he zipped it in two seconds, just like anybody would, you know. Right. So it was very easy to, for the jury to look at it and say, wow, it was that easy. You could have prevented this accident by doing that, mm. you know. Yeah, it would have taken seconds. Well, it, yeah. and, and, and I, I have to say that with having that railroad tie in the courtroom and showing how large and heavy it is, that, you know, when you start imagining that, you know, they're dropping this thing 40 feet to yeah. street level and you don't do everything possible to make sure nobody gets into that area. It's I mean, insane, that's, right? That's pretty ridiculous. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I think having that, uh, that railroad tie, uh, you know, it's just, uh, just so effective. Um, tell me, I, I saw one of the defenses that they argued was that traffic was stopped. And so basically Robert was there all by himself. And, and so they were trying to argue that, you know, well, he should have known, you know, he was in a place he shouldn't have been. Tell me how you, how you went about, um, you know, uh, uh, confronting that. Yeah. You know, honestly, Steve, scary argument, you know, yeah. it was, a, that was a scare. That was the one thing where everything else I looked at and I felt like everything they're going to argue is a trap. And, you know, I had to dig really deep to find the trap in that. And, and I, you know, I, I think unless there, look, there's some evidence that is so obviously bad for you that you should just stay away from it as right, much as right. possible. Right. But I think almost anything else, you know, what we do and what may be like the inherent skill of a trial lawyer. And I don't know where it comes from. If, if it was like for me, if it was for you guys, what it was for me is I was a smart ass kid. So everyone said, ah, you should be a lawyer. You should be a lawyer. That, right, that's, right. You know, but, but I think I, it, I got using that. that's, <laughs> you don't say, but, <laughs> but using that is like, so any fact you say, well, wait a minute, how can this help me? How can I use this to my advantage? And, you know, to me, like the one way that we could push back on that was, and frankly, I don't think they got there. Like you glean the argument from reading it, but you know, when you're, when you're there in the courtroom, I just didn't think they really argued that point as effectively as maybe it reads in the transcript, or maybe right. I was so pumped up that I put the blinders on. I don't know. But I thought that the effective way to argue back against that was to say, if that's true, then he was, then look at what an opportunity they had to see him biking straight for the one place they needed to guard. Right. You know, if everything right. else is stopped, then there is no, Oh, it was chaos everywhere. And, and this kid slipped through the cracks. No, he's the only thing moving then. Yeah. But, but I think there was enough ambiguity in the testimony and really the best piece of it was that the, there was a witness, um, Byron King, who I sort of paid homage to in the summation because I really did think he conducted himself honorably. You know, he, he didn't really like carry the flag and, and maintain the fiction of this was the kid's fault. He kind of came in the courtroom and just told it straight. And he was the one that was in charge of the street crew. And he was the one that was really responsible for making sure traffic was stopped by instructing the traffic agents when to stop it. So he had given me the sun, the moon, and the stars in his testimony. And then the defense attorney got up and said, you know, tried that. He said, well, isn't it true that tra traffic was stopped at this point? And, you know, he stops and he's thinking. And I'm like, oh, my God, what's he going to say? And he says, 
He says, you know, actually, I was closing the barricades at that point, so traffic might have been moving again. So it, just that one moment. Wow. And I think he, I think he might have had to sit down on that. I think the defense attorney, that might have been no further questions. But so like, <laughs> you know, so just that, even that, which I thought was almost a sure thing for them, you know, there, there ended up being enough ambiguity. Well, yeah, and I thought that was a, a really good point that, that uh, Mr. King, who is in charge of the street, he, I, I, at least what I saw in the opening was that uh, he was going to testify that he had been given the all clear. So, so he even thought nothing else was going to be dropped to the street level. Is that right? Yeah. And, you know, the, one of those things that I didn't realize how compelling it was until summation was like, you know, that, that like the way they did this was so dangerous. Uh, the whole time you focus, especially when you're dealing with an authority and you know, the, the David versus Goliath aspect of it and, and, and telling the jury this could have been basically anybody, you know, anybody who's out there on the street that day. And I think I did kill the Lily by saying a, a mother pushing a stroller at least once. And, you know, but, yeah. but even beyond that, like I got to the point where I'm like, you know what, they, what they did was so careless that it was a danger to their own workers. You know, like if, yeah. one, if the guy on the ground thinks that he's got an all clear to then move into the drop zone and pick up debris, and at the same time, the guys on the track think they have the all clear from the street to drop debris. Then, you know, somebody's going to get killed, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, um, well, like I said, I mean, obviously the liability, you know, we could talk about this forever, but I do, do want to talk about how you presented damages once you moved into that phase of yeah. the case. Um, and so uh, talk about how you went, went about presenting, I mean, you know, to get the, um, the future, I mean, the future pain and suffering of 60 million and future medicals of 40 million. So that's a total of 100 million for, for future care. Talk about your, you know, how you went about doing that. Yeah, I mean, obviously a, a big part of it was the momentum, you know, coming in from the, and the way it happened, like the, the liability case we summed up and the jury came back in an hour and 45 minutes with the unanimous 100% liability verdict. And we opened on damages the following morning and put our future medical expert on. So, you know, and the way we had the, the work divided was Dan did the future medical expert and he did the economist. And, you know, I basically was doing all the other parts. So, so I figured going into it, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I was spent. You know? I mean, right, yeah. I, I'm thinking like, oh, cool, I'll do a quick couple of minutes in the opening and then I'll get out of your way and you can do your thing, you know, and then we stayed in a hotel during the trial, even though I live in Brooklyn. Um, and God bless my wife for putting up with that. But, <laughs> right, um, right. but you know, I, I'm is, sure she probably wanted you out of the house during trial. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. She, she, she pretended to complain about it. <laughs> she, I see it's funny. She said, she's asked me when my next trial is, but right, yeah. <laughs> now I know why. No, but, but, um, you know, and, and that's Dan's thing. As he said, on big cases, we stay in all time because, and it's not only that it, it takes away the commuting time and all the other stuff. It, it's also because, you know, for me, it, there's like such a clarity of purpose and you stay so focused the whole time. So we go back to the hotel, which is like a five minute walk from the courthouse. Um, I do my little workout, you know, and, and as I'm on the treadmill, I'm thinking, I'm like, you know what? There are no down moments, not in this case. And I'm jogging on the treadmill and I'm like, you know what? You know what Robert would give to be able to do this right now? Yeah. Like I'm not taking any light steps, not for Robert, you know, I'm getting up there to open and I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to swing for the fence, you know, and, and, you know, so I, I spent like late later into the night than I should have crafting it. 
And, you know, and, and it was, it ended up being a really emotional uh, moment opening and, 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 and the way we had the case, you know, the, the, I didn't even know. It's funny. I took pictures of Robert like last summer when I was with him one time and you just never know where things are going to fit in the case. And I, I didn't even, honestly, I didn't give it much thought. Like we obviously we take pictures of all our clients and, you know, but it was like a sunny day and he's in the wheelchair and he's got a smile on his face, but he has shorts on. So you can see just how much atrophy has happened to his legs. Mm-hmm. And then I took a picture of the scarring on his back. And it was like basically the morning of opening. I was like, you know what? Let me use that in the opening and put that in there. And argued the reason I was able to do is because I said, look, you know, you can object if you want, but then he's going to disrobe in front of the jury. And, I, and right. I'm going to have to help him do that. So you want, do you want that? And so then the defense is like, no, you know what? You go ahead and put your pictures up. But, <laughs> but um, you know, being able to, again, not me saying it, but the image of it, you know, and obviously there were a number of moments when, when me and Dan both got emotional during this case, because it's impossible not to when you're dealing with this. And, you know, I don't mind saying like I was fighting back tears when I was opening on damages and mm-hmm. I'm looking at the picture and I'm about to take it down. And I was like, you know what, look at one more thing and look at the smile on his face. Like there is hope. There has to be hope. There has to be, you know? And I think that like the hope and the idea of there being hope, I think is why the jury was willing to do what they did on future medicals because we put forward a rock solid plan with a great expert and Dan did a phenomenal job putting that testimony in. But I think it was the idea that the jury felt empowered to deliver hope. And the truth is that we, our future medicals was like 37 million and change and they rounded up to 40. You know, I don't know how they made up the difference, um, but you know, but they did. And um, as far as the, the future number on the pain and suffering, you know, this was again the night before I was summing up on damages and we're at the hotel and Dan saying like, what are you going to ask for? And it was sort of like easy for me to conceive of the 9 million for past because I'm thinking it's almost three years exactly to the day. So, you know, as bad as this, as his life has been, I think I can with a straight face tell people that that's fair. 3 million, you know, per, per year. And without, you can't say that up here. There's case law that you can't like, you can't break it down to the year. Um, when you, when you ask for numbers, but you know, obviously the jury's going to do the math and the future number to his credit was Dan's suggestion. He was like, he was like, you know, they'll give it to you. And again, I'm, I'm rapping on the table, knocking wood. And I'm like, you're insane. There's no way they're going to give us that. But you know, I think it was, it was just, I guess, basically he was right in his read and uh, where he was, you know, saying like they, they are that much with us. And they are going to give us exactly what we ask for. And, um, you know, it just honestly, there's I can't tell you, Steve, that there was a, a, some real mathematic formula to why ask for 60 million. I think it broke down to like one point two or one point three a year or something like that. But right. it was more just the idea like and, and I said this to, and, and I, I hit like the hardest rock bottom going into the damages case, because as I said, when we started talking, I had only ever allowed myself to focus on liability for two reasons. One was so that I knew I would do what I had to do for Robert on the liability case. And two was because frankly, like, you know, this, this stuff turns me inside out all day, every day. And I knew that if I really stopped and thought about how bad life is for Robert, that I might not be able to do what I had to do. And, and I couldn't let myself really think about it until we got there. 
But once we did, you know, I mean, I honestly had no problem. I could have asked for 600 million, you know, just thinking about like what has been taken from this kid's life. Right. Um, you know, it was, uh, you know, as I said, you know, it's like the, the greatest moment and, and, and the, the greatest moments in our career are going to be the saddest cases, you know? So, yeah. but something called us to this. So. Well, yeah, and I'm I'm definitely glad uh, glad that they got you on there because uh, mm-hmm. you did a fantastic job. I, I did want to ask about the uh, on the verdict form. Um, it it one of the questions it asks is, or I guess a couple of the questions it asks is how much how many years they're intended right. to provide compensation. I was wondering what's the purpose of that, and why do they why do they ask that? It, well, part of it is is um, in the event that you have to execute a judgment. Okay. And the way it works, and, and I'm, this is where you need Dan on the phone because he, he knows this stuff much better. Um, but the way it works is they, they have to, I think they have to pay future benefits into an annuity. And so okay. they have to, for that, they have to do the math over a certain number of years. And, you know, but it, it, like everything else in the case, it was something that we thought might come into play. And, and there are times when we use the expression where we say, are they going to try and kill our client? You know, are they going to say, is this a case where they're going to say, look, hate to say it, but his condition is so bad, he's not going to live that long. And, right. you know, I, it, that hasn't happened to me yet. And I'm obviously chomping at the bit for somebody to do that to me and, and to be able to say, like, after everything else, now they're going to kill him, too. But um, but, you know, there are cases where it's a legitimate argument. And this, you know, frankly, this this I, that's one I would have thought about, too. If if, if you had tried the, the liability case, that middle of the road, decent way we talked about, then I think if you had the right expert testimony on life expectancy for somebody with Robert's injuries, then I think you could have made a credible case in, on uh, for the defense of saying, look, last thing I want to do is be the one to stand here and say it. But the reality, the medical reality is, you know, his best case scenario is living another 30 years or so, you know? And, uh, so, it, so it, it, the, the life, the number of years could have come into play in that way. It didn't. And they just went with, you know, that was the, they have pattern jury instructions that goes on life expectancy tables. I don't know if you guys have that. Yeah, we, we do. But I mean, you know, uh-huh. one thing that we do face is, um, is, you know, in, especially in brain injury cases, it seems like the most where uh, they will bring in a life expectancy expert that, yeah. you know, will come in and testify, you know, based on statistics and whatever else they're looking at. Uh, which I believe is, you know, a lot of bull, but, um, yeah. And don't they, you, and don't, don't you swing away at that if they oh, do yeah. that to you? Like, I feel yeah. like you have, that's, that's a natural, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but they'll, but they'll, they'll come in and they'll try and say, you know, like, you know, realistically this person only has a, you know, a 15 to 20 year life expectancy left. And, yeah. and, and so you need to consider that in the damages. Um, but, um, so, so when you have your economist come in, do, do they not reduce it to present day value? The, like the, um, you know, for what the no, future medical care is? No, there's, there's, uh, post-trial procedures. There's, there's what we call a 45, 45 hearing up here that deals with offsets okay. and the way the judgment would be executed. There's a, there's what they call a 50 B analysis where there is a discount, there is a discounting to present value under 50 B, but there's also an interest rate that's applied to it. So okay. again, this is, this is the, the Dan O'Toole, uh, missing from the call moment, but, right, right, yeah. but, <laughs> but the, you know, there's, there's math that goes on that does discount, but then there is that offset with the interest rate that, 
it and I think in in the end, I think it ends up you know the the number ends up being better, but there is a discount there. Um, yeah. you know, one if I could just I know you guys are gonna kick me off the phone in a second, no, 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 no. and and I'm and I guess you get the sense like I could do this all day, but um, <laughs> but you know, there's one other thing I did want to mention because uh, just because it, it it's so important in in doing this and. Um, it's was the biggest sticking point for me, you know, cause my, my, my career path was, I was a prosecutor first and then I, I actually defended civil cases for, um, the port authority, which mostly I was defending police officers for, for you know, civil rights violations and that stuff. But, right. um, but then get, coming to this side and doing, uh, what we do, you know, the hardest thing for me was like, well, I do everything throughout the whole trial to demonstrate that I'm just a kid from the city and all I'm ever going to be is me. And all I'm ever going to do is tell you the truth. How the hell at the end of that do I stand there and ask for like these ridiculous numbers that, you know, my, my father was a teacher, you know, like, uh, right. like, like my father's on a pension. Like, how am I asking people for this kind of money? You know, and, and it's been, it, that's been a huge challenge. And I've, I've, uh, that's one of the things that I've really studied and I've read up on and, and, um, you know, and, and frankly, like, again, to his credit, like, like Dan, uh, he gave me the best advice about it was he basically said, like, they want you to explain to them what the number is. You know, you leave this vacuum telling the jury, like, gee, I don't know how to figure it out either, but I trust you. And they're going to give you a low number. Like they want you to say, this is the right number. Um, and, and, you know, but still, obviously when you're standing there asking for what totals up to be $110 million, even in a case this said, like for me, I need like sort of intellectual jumping off point for that. You know, I need, I need to be able to make sense of it when I speak to people. And, and the way I did with this summation is I said, like, listen, and obviously, you know, I, I talk about it all the way from jury selection is that, you know, look, the numbers for the medicals, we're going to be able to put the hard number in front of you. And if they don't challenge it meaningfully, you know, you give us that number. But the pain and suffering is a, an abstract concept, you know. And um, and so, you know, what I, I what I said to them when it came to those questions, the pain and suffering questions, was like, listen, you have to understand that this is this is a calculation, or or, or uh, this is this is an exercise in value with money that is completely different from anything you have ever done before or will ever do again. And the reason is I'm always afraid that like, no matter how much you try and condition jurors, they are somewhere in their mind comparing it to like real world dollars and cents. And so I said specifically, I said, look, this, you can't compare this to a year's wages. You can't compare it to career earnings. You can't compare it, compare it to the, the cost of a building or the cost of a business. You know, there is nothing that compares to what the money is supposed to represent when you answer these questions. And, you know, I just, I think that, uh, it, it, it gave me what I needed because I guess in some sense I need some intellectual distancing from, you know, the fact that I'm standing there asking for those kinds of, of dollars from, from, you know, hardworking people. But right. I mean, obviously in a case with this kind of tragedy, it's different, but you know, I, I still think it's important and it's something that, you know, anyone, anyone doing this, I think, you know, should really give some thought to that and figure out exercises in their trials to, to do that, to really like divorce the jurors mindset from any other concept of money when they answer these questions. 
Well, and it really is. I mean, when you, you know, we're lucky in Georgia that uh, in pain and suffering is broken down into several categories. So you can really walk the jury through just, you know, what the jury charge is on pain and suffering uh-huh. and how you value that. But I mean, when you're talking about a, a, a young man who's, you know, got his whole life ahead of him and, yeah. you know, he's going to have to wear a diaper. He's yeah. you know, not going to have any, you know, real intimate relationships anymore. Yeah. Uh, probably never have kids. I don't, you know, I don't know what science can do in the future. Um, But, you know, I mean, you're you're talking about such a catastrophic change to somebody's life Uh, and he, and he's going to live, you know, a a full life like that. And, and, you know, and that, you know, it's almost incalculable, you know, you know, what the value of that is because nobody would ever say, yeah, give me a hundred million dollars and I'll trade places with him. Nobody would do that. That's right. And that, you know, that, and that line is, you know, the, is pure gold, you know, when anytime that you get there in summation where you're talking about, you know, do you think anybody in their right mind would, would, you know, would pay any number for this? I think that's a really effective tool to get, to, to get the jury where you need them on those questions too. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I, I love the way you guys think. I really do, man. You do an amazing job. I'm not missing a single one of these. Well, I, I, I really appreciate it. I'm going to come down and be a guest host down in Georgia one of these days. <laughs> oh, my gosh. We, we, we would love that. that. That would be fun. <laughs> that would be fun. Um, right. and, and, you know, with, with technology, I mean, we'd love to have you down here in Georgia, but you don't have to. I mean, I know it's a, I know that's a trip, but um, – but man, I'm looking, really, look, I'm looking for an excuse. Come on, man. I will tell you, Savannah is beautiful right now and it, and the weather is perfect. So uh, I don't know what it's like in New York right now, but no, uh, it's, it, uh, look, I, there, there's never a bad time for, for a trip and I've heard nothing but amazing things about Savannah. I would love to get down there sometime. Um, all and, right, you, and you should do it. Bring a new fresh uh, you, uh, perspective you, on the you, podcast. Yeah, Yvonne, exactly. you should know though. You're gonna have to have room for me, my wife, and my three kids. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no and the problem. The little guy, no the little problem. guy, really eats. I'm telling you. <laughs> well, that that might be the only problem because the only thing I ever have in my fridge is beer, and I'm guessing that's not <laughs> diet. But. You know, there, there are nights when you think about it, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man. Well, listen, Scott, well, this has been really just a great uh, conversation and, um, and we really appreciate you coming on and talking about this cra- this case. The case that we've been talking about is Lisiaga versus the New York city transit authority. It was a 110 million, $174,972 and 38 cents uh, verdict that, uh, that uh, Scott and his partner, Daniel got uh, just, uh, I think less than a month ago. Um, yep. up in New York City. And, um, and our guest has been Scott Occhio-Grosso. Uh, Scott is a partner at, um, oh man, I just misplaced uh, Block O'Toole and Murphy. And, uh, and you can look up Scott at, on the website at blockotool.com. And Scott, really, uh, yeah, thank you so much for, um, for coming on. And we really enjoyed talking to you. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yvonne, you see he dropped the WWW that time, right? Yeah, I did, I did. Yeah. I, I remember. I, I, I learned. I'll, I'll forget. He's too, learning. So. He's learning. He's learning. No, every, every, every few episodes, he slides see, back. men can time. learn. Men can learn. Yeah. <laughs> no, you, you guys, all kidding aside, like I, like I said from the start, I love what you guys do, and uh, I'm, I'm a fan for life, and thank you so much. This has really been an honor and a thrill for me. Oh, well, well thank, thank you. For- thank you, Scott. Yeah, that, that means a lot to us because, uh, you know, we, 
We do enjoy it, and uh, and we we enjoy talking to lawyers like yourself, and then hearing how you uh, you know tried a case with you know this was this was not a uh, uh, this was by no means a slam dunk. It was very heavily uh, defended, and and you know and you had a, a client who you know obviously is very deserving, but had you know some stuff in his history that. Uh, meant that you, you know you, it, it had to be addressed and uh, and you all did it masterfully and we um, we appreciate hearing from you thank you so much you guys take care okay thank you Scott ladies and gentlemen of the jury have you reached a verdict thank you for listening to the great trials podcast you can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com we realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining, and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials podcast com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.